Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Hello, and welcome to this episode of This Spiritual Fix, Season 4, Episode 5. Today we are talking about neurodivergence, apathy, denial, and detachment. Enjoy. This Spiritual Fix, Two Mystical Mamas Hacking the Self-Help Game, with Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hi, Christina. Hi, Anna. Excited about today's episode? Yeah, especially because it arose from... Nothing. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) It arose from Instagram, actually. No, wait. How did it originally... Uh, because you were experiencing detachment. Oh, yeah. I've been experiencing detachment, and I actually sought counsel with our shaman, Robbie, mm-hmm. because I was like, what is going on? And then it just got me really curious about the difference between detachment versus apathy versus, and then there's other things, denial and masking, which I don't even know what masking means, but I'm going to learn about it from you today. And yeah. then, yeah, I'm cool. excited about this episode. So Very cool. Very cool. What are we talking about in our prelude, which is... What we usually... We're going to be talking about in our prelude this really interesting TikTok that I came across, which was all about colonial therapy techniques, traditional colonialist therapy. White supremacist therapy. We can say that better. White supremacist therapy is based on a very individualistic treatment plan in the sense that it takes the individual out of its community, out of its family, and says, I'm going to treat you, and I'm going to say what's best for you, without recognizing that by taking... A individual out and not taking a community approach like basically taking an individual out of a community and saying this is what you need to do they are not giving them sustainable or even reasonable methods for actually dealing with something specifically when it comes to making boundaries so like for example no for people not understanding this they mean like no contact or cutting off your toxic family members right it's a very individualistic isolating and it, it assumes that people can cut off their support systems and still be able to, to kind of function. Whereas most traditional cultures and non-white supremacist cultures, community is everything, right? Or it's not everything. It's a very, very important part of a person's daily life. And therefore, if you were to cut off and be like, hey, no contact with this person, as opposed to teaching them community-based solutions 
then you're doing an incredible disservice. You're doing an incredible disservice mm -hmm. to a person who needs the community as part of it. And I'm not even saying someone who needs the community. For me, when I talk to clients and in my experience, like the, the whole, I'm gonna cut you out of my life, you're a toxic person, I'm never gonna interact with you again, is it is a privileged position. It's a very privileged position. And it's also, it doesn't teach that there are actually healthy boundaries that can exist with people who are, right? Or who- Quote unquote toxic. Quote unquote toxic. Yeah. And fu the funny thing being that you, in, in some ways, creating no, no contact and, and completely cutting yourself off, in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases, cutting yourself off is in and of itself a toxic behavior, right? Just, you know, because we exist here on earth in human bodies to interact in relationship. And so when it comes to this, I think it is really important to recognize that if you have a therapist or you have an advisor who's telling you continually or telling you a lot to go into no contact situations that would actually be harmful to you. Or you're on psychotherapy TikTok or Reddit where everyone's like, oh, just go no contact. NC yes. is the thing. Just go no contact. Right. That, that th advice might be antiquated. It may be antiquated. It may be too individualistic and it doesn't actually look at the system as a whole. So that's something that we just wanted to talk about because I think it is really important and it may feel it may feel empowering to be able to be like I'm not going to contact you know I'm not going to come into contact with any of these I'm things block but you know so. yeah like I was I you know I was I was talking with someone about you know how they're in a relationship in a work relationship with someone who's abusive and toxic to them and I think years ago I would have been like oh just quit the job right but that's the rejection part of me speaking to them right and I've learned a lot in my in my time to say like actually running away and fugitiving from these difficult situations you lose an opportunity to actually form a healthy boundary with all sorts of people in your life because you're gonna have all sorts of people in your life we can't bypass right you all can't, the bad just can't cut out all the bad people you can't cut out all the bad people so what are we talking about today well, we're going to talk about four different ways that we separate ourselves from reality. Right. And those four ways are masking, apathy, denial, or bypass, and the last one being detachment. Right. So I think a really helpful other way of saying this is the way that I think of it in general is what we're talking about is there are types of patriarchal spirituality if you want to say it, that are coming to the forefront in general, which encourage a form of unhealthy attachment in some ways, or detachment, unhealthy detachment. And as you can see here on this spiritual fix, we're kind of more of the matriarchal lineage of spirituality, think? right? I do, I do. I generally think That's that- That's what Ainsley said. Yeah, I think that we're, we're more of the bent that we think that experience and should not be be bypassed it shouldn't it needs to it needs to to find its place in the body so that it can leave and be unwound and the energy can just go back into the you know it's like the the great mother as opposed to like kind of the more Eckhart Tolle which is more the pain body sits outside even though we obviously take stuff all over the place and that has been the kind of predominant feeling of the new age is like I'm gonna put the pain and the pain is the pain body that sits outside of my body it doesn't sit inside of my body and therefore I'm going to run my pain through that pain body or dissociate from it to whatever extent so that's kind of I think of the overarching thing of the way that I see this that there are healthy forms of detachment which we're going to talk about at the end but that there are other forms that may not necessarily run the same line. 
Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? I think that on the apparent level, now on the subtle and deeper levels, it's all exactly as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. But I think on the apparent level, there are things we do to disconnect from reality that don't serve us. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Cool. So we're going to start with masking or what I'm going to say... What is masking? <laughs> well, so it's actually probably more accurately to say neurodivergence in general, right? So what we're overall, all these things, all these four things are explaining, and I'll kind of give the overview of what we're trying to explain, is the experience in which you don't necessarily feel excitement or it's almost like it's not a form of a, oh my God, I'm never going to remember the Latin term, but there's a Latin term for, oh, ahedonia, right? Which is a lack of being able to like experience the ups and downs in life. And like, you know, it comes from hedonism, right? And a, a, that's not probably how you say ahedonia. That's probably a very Southern way of saying it, but it's a thing in which you don't experience the pleasures or suffering or anything. Like you're kind of like detached from it. It's a form of detachment. It's a psychological. Flat affect. Very much so, yes. And so in neurodivergence, we have a tendency, and this is, and, and I'm, I'm using the fact that neurodivergence is autism and ADHD and that they may be on the same spectrum or they may be in like a, you know, those spider web grids, right, where you have like a circle and there's like a bunch of different things and an autistic person shows social as it's maybe lower in social and, and energy may be higher in ADHD, but like they're all kind of just different versions of Is like... It, well, who else falls into the neurodivergent category? So other people who would fall into that category. Would be highly sensitive people. There's a whole book on that. There's a quiz I'll put in the show notes if you are a highly sensitive person. I know that I am. Yeah, yeah. So those are, when I talk about neurodivergence, the kind of, you can... You can do a lot of research on this. I think there was this really funny meme that was like, now in 2022, everyone thinks that they have ADHD. You know, like everybody's self-diagnosed as having ADHD. But but in general, it's the idea that your brain doesn't necessarily sort information and it doesn't sort the world in the same sort of way. It has a different way of running energy through its body. The way I think of it psychically is that you effectively have different openings in your chakra, which allow you to be sensitive to some things that other people aren't. It also obviously has different ways of executive functioning, right? So executive functioning is task management, working memory, all that kind of stuff. Like you're able to, you take on tasks in a different way. Your motivations come usually in a different way and things along those lines. So for me, when I say masking, when I was like talking about that is that what I feel is a neurodivergent a lot of the time, and this is probably a slightly more autistic version of my neurodivergence, is that when people are very, very excited about something or when people, like the things that would normally excite other people, I don't find exciting at all. I'm just like, 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 I don't know, like if I succeed and I achieve something or I get something that normally should make me very happy, I just don't really feel anything. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, and it's like the same with the charts. Like I've been trying, I was trying to explain it to you. So Anna loves the charts. She's like, she loves the numbers. She loves everything that has to do with it. iTunes, Apple podcast charts. Right. So the charts are something, I mean, and this is, this obviously has to do with the fact that like maybe numbers just don't do it for me. But at the same time, like Anna gets so excited about the charts and I find it difficult to to connect to, with that. To understand, Dan, she's talking about the Apple iTunes charts yeah. where it ranks her podcasts, and mm-hmm. I like to look at it and see where we are charting in other countries. And Christina doesn't care. Yeah, 
And it's just one of those things where, whether it's goals in my own life, that normally, probably, I assume neurotypical people would be excited about, right? They work towards something and then they're like, oh, this is so great. I feel so great that I've achieved this and this is so fantastic. I don't, I feel very kind of disconnected from it. And I'm like, I think in theory, I'm supposed to be excited about this. So sometimes I pretend to be, which is the masking. And there's a part of me that I'm just like, is anybody actually excited? I, I often have that moment of like, is everyone just faking it? Because for me, masking is the experience of basically trying to pretend like you're a neurotypical, right? Like they're basically like, you're like, hey, I'm supposed to be, I know logically that other people who are neurotypical, like if I want to fit in and I don't want to be an outcast and not consider things, I need to be excited about this thing because a neurotypical person we would. So that's masking. Masking is the experience of a neurodivergent trying to fit in to a neurotypical society. And they're basically like, hey, I'm just going to pretend like I'm really excited about this right now, even though I actually don't give a shit. Is it conscious? It is now, right? It is a lot of the times. No, I, think that, I think that... I think that do it realize they're doing it? I think that a lot of people who've been doing it their whole life probably don't even recognize that they're doing it. For me, I didn't recognize I was doing it until I actually realized as an adult that I have ADHD and then recognizing how much I do do that, like how much I say things and do things that make people feel better even if I don't understand. I feel very detached from it. I feel very detached from it. Do you think you might be autistic too? Oh, I think I'm definitely on the autism spectrum. I always used to think that because there was a, I mean, this is like a really stupid thing, but like I read every single sign going down the street. Like I know the, like anywhere I go, I know the map of it automatically. And I know like I read every single street sign and I like create a grid in my head of where I'm going. And like, I read every single sign that's there. Like anything that is available to read when I'm driving, I read it, unless I'm like actively driving, you know? But like, if I'm a passenger, I literally read every single sign that there is. And someone once joked that that was an autistic trait. That's not obviously good enough reason. I've never been diagnosed as an autistic, but like I, as, as being on this autism spectrum, but I have been diagnosed and being on the neurodivergent spectrum. And if they are the same, right? If they're kind of like a, they're not like a line, it's more of a circle. And like what, like I said before, like what traits do you have on it that I do definitely have an aspect of that. Hmm. So, you know, for me, detachment is actually, you know, I could be because of my brain wiring, right? And the way that my brain is. I ultimately believe that neurodivergence and neurotypical is apparent reality, right? It is this idea that like we're creating a line that basically says this person is typical and this person is divergent, right? And it's kind of like in the movie Divergent, which I actually didn't even realize was called Divergent. But in the movie Divergent, I don't know if anyone remembers this, like back in the day, there was books and they had like the five, yeah. you know, they had candor and abnegation and dauntless and whatever the fuck and then two more which I can't remember right now oh amnity and then one other one right and then they had the basically the idea is that they had everybody was was sorted into these five different ways in which they had different strengths so people who had were particularly truthful were candor and then there were people who were particularly you know like who risk were takers. very intellectual yeah. and risk takers and things like that those were the it so it was like a very much a map of neurotypical right so the people who fit easily and like the tests work for them and they could easily slot into one of these different five factions they were considered the best part of the society right and then there was this the main character was 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 divergent 
right? So she literally used the language. She was divergent, meaning that she fit in a lot of the categories, right? So she couldn't fit into one of them. She didn't obviously fit into any of them. And they basically waged war on her and her type because she was breaking the system. Oh, wow. Right? And so, and then there was obviously this whole other faction list, which were, again, people who didn't fit into any of them, right? Who basically had to live in their own society, separate and like kind of considered like, like an underworld that they had to live in, you know? So it was just very, I thought it was a very interesting social commentary on the way that we see neurotypicals versus neurodivergence, literally using the language of that, you know, where it's like, you just don't really fit into any of the typical slots in school and jobs and the way that things go. And as a result, you develop a lot of masking so that you can kind of cope and work in the world in the same way. So, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm now very conscious of it, but for for years I wasn't. I just thought that I was doing what I was supposed to do. Which was pretending to be interested in things you weren't interested in? Or pretending to feel feelings that I didn't feel. What about when you got engaged or married? I was very excited when I got married, but I think that had to do with the toning. <laughs> do you remember that? At my, at my wedding when we all sang, like, it's, it's a really beautiful thing that you can do, especially with a group of people who've done it before. But basically, everyone just starts singing, and it becomes this, like, chorus of tones. Like, nobody's singing any words. I don't remember. It was at the end of my wedding, and it was the most amazing thing. And everyone was so hyperactive afterwards because it, like, they, it kind of reaches a crescendo, and then it naturally falls off. And we had all sorts of people at my wedding. So we had, like, family and in-laws who were like, what the fuck is this? Like, you know, we don't do this at our Lutheran church sort of thing. But... I definitely felt it at my wedding and I felt it when I got engaged too, but it's, it's different. It doesn't, I don't think it feels the same way that other people feel. I like look at other people and my brain doesn't quite compute how they can feel that excited about that thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I get excited about things. Yeah, you do. And I love that because I can kind of live through you (laughs) (laughs) or just be like, what the hell is she experiencing? Right. So that's my, that's one form of detachment that can happen, which is just, you know, on the apparent level, you're just wired differently. All right. Well, I'm going to now talk about apathy and I wanted to talk about apathy because I actually see it a lot in my job. I am in healthcare and I work with people who have neurological illnesses, diseases, I should say, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, ALS, all those things. And with that, you will see a lot of apathy. So I was very curious. I thought, well, maybe apathy is part of the aging brain because mm-hmm. I see it in my patients. So I decided that I'll be looking at the apathy one. So this is coming from an article by Manal Gosan about apathy versus attachment. So I just want to give a little bit of a description of apathy and then what it, where it comes from, what it looks like. So it's about passive indifference. It's a belief of like, we don't care and I don't see the point in caring. It's mind numbing and soul crushing, like fixating on negativity that stifles imagination, suffocates desires, only seeing limitations. It's bleak and defeatist, like assuming the worst outcome in things. It's draining, makes you feel depleted. It's demotivating. Apathy can lead someone to feel that there's nothing to look forward to. It can be depressing. It can be coupled with depleted energy, lack of motivation, despair. And it's important here now, I'm going to go into some more definitions. Apathy is not the same as depression. In some cases, apathy is part of a depressive disorder. Like it can be a symptom of depression and it can be coupled with depression to make it different to separate the two. But depression is about feelings of worthlessness and guilt, whereas a person who feels apathy might just feel no mood at all or is emotionally flat. 
Okay, so okay. it's kind of like if we have a scale, and let's say on a scale of negative 10 to 10, 10 is a happy, hopeful person, and negative 10 is a depression, zero would probably be apathy. Like it's just okay. an absence of either. So it's like ahedonia a little bit, like what we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah. Now you will see apathy in neuropsychiatric disorders like Alzheimer's, and the presence of apathy is related in caregiver distress because if you're taking care of someone who's apathetic, that's extremely frustrating and discouraging. Yeah. And it can decrease the quality of life, and it can increase the morbidity of the illness, meaning it can make the illness that they're suffering from worse. Apathy is one of the most prevalent neurobehavioral symptoms in Huntington's disease. For example, people with Huntington's disease, 70% of them are experiencing apathy. And it's interesting that in Huntington's disease, apathy isn't just a mental construct, like they are apathetic, but they are physically apathetic. Like I can be like, do this with your hands. And after doing something with their hand, some exercise after 10 reps, they don't want to do it anymore. Their body doesn't want to do it anymore. And they're like, I just can't physically do it anymore. Like the muscles have apathy. Oh, wow. Yeah. The progression of apathy is associated with early brain changes in the frontal lobe and cingulate gyrus. So basically, there is a place in your brain where apathy might be living, and it's an early marker of cognitive decline and brain changes in pre-symptomatic frontotemporal dementia. So basically what it's saying is you could get an MRI and it could kind of in some ways show you, are you apathetic or not? That's so interesting because in some ways it feels like, because isn't it the, the executive functioning part of your brain is in your frontal lobe, isn't it? Yeah. So it's almost like a exaggerated version of, of a neurodivergent brain that has trouble with executive functioning in some ways. Because like, like when you're describing that, I can feel that, but like using my psychic whatever, when you describe Huntington's disease, I can almost see it as if it's like, as if there's a detachment going on between like a level of the body. Like it's like, like imagine that the physical body and then you have the emotional body and then you have like all these other bodies outside of it, right? That there's almost like, like the sheath, like the outer part of the physical body, like the energetic part of the physical body has detached slightly from the physical body itself, right? So that like, there's a gap, there's like an air gap between the two and it makes it hard to cross between it because like the apathy kind of a lot, makes you just wanna sit in the energetic but not actually move the body to do it. I can't really explain it. It's like a, it's like a micro separation is what I see energetically. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I was really interested in apathy is because I did VR seven, which we've discussed in earlier episodes is a alien technology from one of our teachers that cleans up your auric system. And after I had my last VR seven experience, I've been experiencing a lot of, let's call it detachment or apathy. I didn't know, you know, I've mm -hmm. been like, I've been feeling detached from a lot of things. And I started getting worried that I was experiencing apathy because certain things that used to bother me were not bothering me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really worried about outcomes anymore. And like, I'm a very goal-driven, workist, productive person. I make my to-do lists and I check them off, like that's me. And I've just kind of been like, go with the flow and da da da. But the whole reason I was going into apathy is I was experiencing after having done VR7 and and doing a lot of spiritual quote unquote work and shadow work, I was experiencing a lack of care for the outcome. Mm -hmm. And I was experiencing a lot of detachment for things quote unquote going wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that I determined it wasn't apathy, and we're gonna go into this later when we talk about detachment, 
there is a lack of emotion Mm -hmm. and changes in mood, but I was still experiencing happiness and I was experiencing a sense of calm. My detachment was coming from a place of calm Mm -hmm. and everything is going to end up being okay. And it wasn't coming from a place of, well, nothing matters anyways. Right. It wasn't coming from an anxiety place. It was like, it was the absence of anxiety as opposed to the absence of motivation or something like that. Right. Like it wasn't coming from a a place of hopelessness. It was Mm -hmm. coming from a place of everything's okay anyways. Yeah. So that was kind of how I determined that it wasn't apathy and it was detachment, but we'll go into that a little bit more later. Cool. Okay. Okay. So the next one we're going to talk about is, uh, denial, which I interpret as different forms of bypass. So in the first season of TSF, we talked about some forms of spiritual bypass, particularly when we were talking about positivity and toxic positivity, right? Because one of the kind of most well-known forms and kind of most looked down upon and well-known forms of spiritual bypass is positivity bypass. And we've talked about this when we talked in our bonus on focus on the flower, right? Which is this idea of like, how do you not, how do you still look towards the positive and still look towards your North Star, but you don't do it because you're just trying to like, you know, that you don't do it without the balance of like recognizing that you have your shadow and recognizing that the shadow exists in the world, right? The difference between like, basically seeing a flower and only seeing the flower and being like, isn't that so amazing? And not seeing the, like the dead body that's it's rising out of, right? Right. That's soil, by the way, not just an actual dead body, even though that was the vision that came <laughs> into my head. carcass remnants. So I wanted to talk about a number of different types of bypass. And this is kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning too, with like the idea of pain bodies. And if the pain bodies are sitting outside of your body, then you can have a tendency to possibly bypass the feeling of suffering that you're having in the body or the feeling that you're having in your body and kind of denying that that is your experience and being like, I'm just not going to do that. So the reason that we bring this up is that you could be feeling detachment from things, but it could be that you're just incredibly good and subtle at your different forms of bypass. Right. Denial. Right. So specifically, spiritually bypass is to use spirituality to avoid, suppress, or escape from uncomfortable issues or feelings in life. Right. And we've talked about this before because, you know, we talk about forgiveness practices all the time as an example. Right. And for me, when I first started doing forgiveness practices, it was a form of spiritual bypass for me. I was, instead of feeling the feeling, I was like, I'm just going to go straight to forgiveness because that's the whole point. Right. Of course, a miracle says I just have to forgive everything. Right. I'm not Mm going to have to feel it at all. And I was recognizing that that was not allowing me to go through the full stress response cycle that I was experiencing. Right. So talking about like, I would get a fight or flight experience, right? Like even going into a regression or going into some past experience, I was going through a fight or flight experience and I would feel the, my heartbeat racing or I would go to some sort of experience and then I would just be like, I would feel very uncomfortable in my body, right? Like I would feel like I had done something wrong. I would start scenarioizing in my head. I would create scenarios in which I was seeing all the did ways that I did a new word I did yes Sarah. scenarioizing yeah I, just, I like it I like it I was creating scenarios in my mind in which I was the one who was doing everything wrong which is a form of bypass it's a perpetrator fallacy or they were doing everything wrong and then I was just kind of perpetuating victim this fallacy. cycle yes victim fallacy and you know just kind of perpetuating everything in my mind without allowing and and then instead of 
recognizing that that was going on and letting the stress response fill itself out, right? Which is like basically the steps of that are you recognize that you're going through all these scenarios in your mind because your body, your mind doesn't want to experience what your body is feeling right now, right? Which is a mixture of I may have done something wrong, the other person may have done something wrong, and I'm afraid, but this isn't dangerous, right? Okay. Like this isn't dangerous or or I can move through this, right? Like I can move through this frozen or fightful fight feeling that I have or whatever it is. Recognizing that, stopping the scenario building in your mind, and then allowing yourself to feel the feelings uh-huh. of how it feels for having made a mistake or whatever, and stopping the judgment, allowing your body to relax again and fully feel that entire stress cycle. I was jumping straight from scenario to forgiving without recognizing that I needed to expend the energy that was built up in my body as a result of this fight or flight. Right. Right. And so forgiveness comes after that, right? Forgiveness comes once your body has relaxed and felt the feelings so that you're not suppressing the feeling, that you're not, that you're allowing the stress response cycle to go fully out in the way that it needs to. And then you're doing your forgiveness practices. Then you're doing things when you're in a calm space, you feel safe and your body has normalized again to whatever extent you need. Because there is a very important experience on apparent reality that we create we create body energy. We basically, when we go through these experiences, when we go through any sort of stress response cycle or any sort of conflict or anything that makes it so that, that fundamentally we feel unsafe or that we are going through some friction, some massive pocket of resistance that like we've talked about, there is a bodily reaction that has to, that happens and that needs to diffuse itself. Right. There is energy in the body that is accumulating, that is being unlocked, right? Probably from a past life, probably from this current life, something that is a pocket of energy that you've literally, you know, poked a a hypodermic needle into by doing this and it's releasing its energy. And if you start scenarioizing, all you're doing is basically rebuilding the boundaries around that same pocket of energy. And you need to, you need to, I keep, oh, I keep thinking of like an abscess and like, you know, draining it. Like it's like draining a wound, right? It's like you just have to allow it to get all of its energy out and then it won't have as much power in your life anymore. I'm sorry if that's a really gross image yeah. that people have in their minds. I know the the quintessential way that I do denial as an abandonment wound person, I did this a lot before marriage. Uh, I don't have to do it so much with my husband because he doesn't trigger my abandonment that much. Is there's this cycle with the abandonment wound where it's like, it's like, Overgiving, overpleasing, overperforming, mm-hmm. and the person doesn't reciprocate, mm-hmm. and that's my denial phase, where you're like, everything's okay, they don't have to reciprocate, it's fine, yeah. love can be one-way traffic. Oh, it's okay that they didn't remember our anniversary, but I did. Oh, it's okay that they got me a shitty gift for my birthday, but I thought of something really thoughtful for theirs. Oh, it's okay that they didn't do this or do that, and you keep justifying, denying, denying your frustration, and then blow up. Because finally gets to a point where you're like, well, fuck this. They're not reciprocating. And you blow up on them. And then you feel guilty for the blow up. So then you overcompensate for the guilt that you feel for having had a blow up where they were blindsided. And then you go back to the overgiving, overperforming. So it's like a cycle. And I know that I definitely did that as an abandonment wound, the denial thing, where I'd be like, this doesn't really bother me. That's a fawn response, right? We, That's like a fawn response in some ways, right? Like if you want to relate it back to like the stress Can you explain the different ones? Yeah, so there's fight, which is... 
oftentimes injustice wounds. I'm going to argue, right. Yeah, I'm going to argue gonna, with right, you. Right. So oftentimes, so we want to talk injustice wounds and humiliation wounds. I would say a lot would choose fight. I know you're looking at me like, why would humiliation wound? I think if, if a humiliation wound takes the supremacy route, which is right. thinking that they're better than, as opposed to thinking that they're worse than, which humiliation goes both ways, they would both take a flight, fight, excuse me, fight. Fight is often rejection sensitive dysphoria too, which is this idea of if you had like, no, the no, I'm actually saying that rejection sensitive dysphoria is when you get super, super angry and you're fighting. Like you're literally having a super angry outburst. So, and see abandonment only does it after months or weeks or years of swallowing their own. Right. So fight is when you actually start to fight with someone because of a, a response that you're having, right? That you feel in danger because of an uncomfortable feeling that you're in conflict or something's happening. Your stress response cycle has been triggered. Okay. Flight is typical fugitive rejection. Typical fugitive. Okay, I'm running away from the unwanted simulation. Stimulus. Right, exactly. And that is also that can be humiliation also that can be abandonment they can both do flight where they're just like i'm out yeah abandonment's like i'm gonna abandon you so before you can abandon me right freeze is often humiliation and abandonment i would say probably as well but freeze is when you just like like i have pigs right and there's one pig that almost all of them fly almost all of them run away when, when they come? when when we, they first were scared and they didn't know who we were, they almost all ran away before they recognized that we. But like, one would freeze. Cups. But one would freeze and just play dead, right? So what was his wound? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Being a pig in this life over and over again and reincarnating as a pig, I'm not sure. But but that but but How freeze. Cute, though I, it was really cute. Freeze. I feel like can go for a lot of different ones. It's a very. I, I feel like in some ways it's like a very particular one because rejection would probably go for a lot of freeze as well because they're just like I'm just gonna pretend like I don't exist and if I play dead they won't know that I'm here and I'm gonna disappear, right? So that's Aww. that experience. And then fawn is when you do what would think would be the opposite where you basically start to try and over please like you try and please. Oh, that's abandonment. The threat. Yeah, that's abandonment. Like. One hundred percent. We didn't mention betrayal. I would say that betrayal does fight in it because it wants to control the situation, right? So it's it's like it's going in and, and fighting or something along those lines, or it's conscious or it's, fawn. Yeah, yeah. I think abandonment is unconscious fawn. I think that's right, and we've always said that about abandonment betrayal, right? That it's like that abandonment is unconscious fawning. It's like unconscious. I'm going to please you and betrayal. Unconscious is conscious. manipulation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, more passive versus more active. Whereas betrayal is more active manipulation. Whereas fawning is very much so. I'm going to try and cozy up to to the threat because that's going to be the best way to deal with the threat. Right. And I also think denial, like reality, if it's an onion, if reality is an onion with many layers, right? And the center mm-hmm. one being we are all one and everything's okay, and then the apparent truth is on the outermost level. I think sometimes you don't realize you're in denial of something until you go deeper and deeper and deeper or until the, the deeper, you know, skins of the onion come to the surface. Yeah. So sometimes you might, I mean, I don't think it's a conscious thing that we're consciously trying to be in denial about things, but you know, you might really think you had a great childhood and then one day it comes to the service and you realize, oh no, there was a lot of control dramas in there or there was a lot of this going on or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and and that sometimes works. So I'm gonna go through, this is an article by a woman named Alethea Luna and it is on thelonerwolf.com. So I wanna cite that because it's a really good article. It goes through the 10 types of spiritual bypass. Oh, can you read in it? In particular, yeah. Or sum it? Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna sum it up. 
So first is what we were talking about before, which is the optimistic bypass, which is the idea of focus on the positive, see the glass is half full. We're gonna completely deny that anything negative is happening. So even if you are going through conflict, if you're, it's like it's like imagine being in the middle of a stress response cycle and someone coming up and you being like, it's okay, everything's gonna be okay. And you're like, well, it doesn't fucking feel okay right now. Right, right. <laughs> right, like that's the, the whole idea is that is that we live in a human body and in apparent reality, people experience the ups and oh, downs of oh, life. Like the worst one is when someone has a miscarriage and they go, oh, well, you can have more kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Experience the grief, pay tribute to the fact that you are experiencing this and hold space for yourself while you do it. The next one is called the aggrandizement bypass, which Ooh. is basically they're using the spiritual seeking language and everything like that and like, oh, I'm on my path to enlightenment to basically mask their perceived deficiencies and insecurities. So they're basically using, they're deluding themselves into thinking that they're much further along the path, so to speak. Like they're aggrandizing oh their gosh. own experience than they are by being like, I'm so advanced. Like I've, I've, met, so many, I've met so many people. Oh, like I know. This. I know this um, uh, quote unquote spiritual teacher that basically abused his students. Mm -hmm. He's like the one blocked person in my phone. And he will be like, well, I'm just a great teacher and my methods work to help people. And even if I'm sleeping with my students or insulting my students or trying to cause divorces, it's ultimately for their own good because I can see things other people can't see. Yeah, that's it. It's a narcissist the twist of this it is it's so basically it's often used by self-proclaimed masters leaders and spiritually awakened souls and gurus the next one is very interesting and maybe slightly controversial Ooh, what is it the victim bypass oh we all do that shit well we totally all do this but it's so interesting because one of the things that they're saying identifying as an empath is a form of victim bypass Explain in this article that. sometimes it can be that you are interpreting that the feelings that you're feeling, like if you're feeling really volatile, if you're feeling really whatever, you're like, well, it's just the people in the room that are causing me to be volatile. I'm a victim <laughs> of the experience of I'm everyone absorbing, I'm absorbing. Yeah. Right? I'm just an empath. I'm absorbing their suffering. Right. I'm and, like, no, dude, it's in you too. Right. Like, that's what I always say. No one can create the neurological right. transmitters in your brain to admit something that you don't have to admit. Right, and that's that's what I always say is that it's it's the tuning fork phenomenon. You literally like an empath. If anything, I mean, it, it, I've even heard some really recent things, and I'm, I'm I shouldn't touch touch on this without actually talking about it. But that like empath and narcissist are kind of can sometimes be considered oh, certain two types sides of, of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin, right? Because whereas narcissist is is the perpetual like kind of persecutor sort of role the empath is the perpetual victim sort of role right of like i'm experiencing this so if someone's tuning forks are going off in the room if you if you literally have a symphony of emotions going off in the room you just have an ability to have all the tuning forks in your body all your shadow work starts ringing at the same frequency and so it couldn't feel completely overwhelming because you're not feeling their emotions you're feeling your resonance of their emotions right 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 and no so, one can ever yeah. make you feel anything right and so but we, we think well we think of it as like there's definitely transference of energy i'm not saying that's happening i'm just saying that being an empath is often a result of trauma of having to be incredibly sensitive and turn up all your tuning forks in your body so that you can read the room and understand what's going well, on that's true right and so being able to turn that down again is a very important part to being a functioning part of human and recognize that you aren't the victim of needing to do this because a lot of the time that ability comes from trauma and being in a victim position. Right. And just when I said 
no one can make you feel anything. What I meant to say is no one can make you feel anything that you didn't have inside you. Right. Which is, which is tough. Which and is it's tough. also the same case when like abusers say, look what you made me do. No, like they did that. Yeah. Period. Yeah. It's all, it's all. I like this list. Yeah. The next is the psychonaut bypass. The psychonaut. You know, psychonauts, psychedelic drugs, using psychedelic drugs, using LSD, DMT, psilocybin, mescaline, and other entheogens to expand the mind and the perception of existence. It's a wonderful and fascinating way to, to explore oh, it's, reality. It's a way to bypass your meditation and your shadow work is to jump into these experiences. What? So basically the idea, yeah, is that it can be used as a form of escaping reality and avoiding committing to personal development and soulful refinement. I think that that... Yeah, that makes sense. I think it can also... Unless you use it in a very ceremonial, deliberate way. I think that there are definitely opportunities for for psychedelics to come into spiritual work. And it can sometimes do huge leaps and amazing experiences, right? That you can actually really, really unlock a lot of your shadow work. I would definitely say that's the case. But I think that there's also a tendency that if you are using it so often that you're escaping reality, then... You need to, (laughs) basically psychedelics take you out of your body so that you're almost entirely in the etheric while still being in a human body. And we are meant to be in our human bodies for a reason. We're not here to escape it. Yeah. The horoscope bypass. Oh, well I did that because I'm a Leo. Is that what that is? (laughs) Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So. No, well that's just because he's a Libra. Yeah. He's never, he's never going to remember to text you when he's out of town if if he's an air sign. (laughs) Right, right. And, and also failing to do something or not doing something this is this is what i would call like the 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 divination bypass right which is this like i'm not going to do anything right now and i'm not going to experience my life because the psychic told me in six months this is supposed to happen and so i'm just going to sit here and wait for it to happen as opposed to going out and living my life right like i used to do that like i mean i've mentioned that on past episodes where i used to like look at a fucking tarot card for every single thing that i was doing you know, because I was like, oh, there has to be a right decision. But then I started to realize there was no such thing as a right decision, right? So there's like the horoscope bypass, and I'm and and one of the ways that they that they're describing the horoscope bypass is derived from a fear and mistrust of ourselves and our ability to make decisions and our ability to deal with anything tough that comes our way. So we basically we we look to our horoscopes for you know like predictive this. like predictive horoscopes to be right. able to give us the guidance that we need so that we don't actually have to make a decision. I won't and like sign a contract during mercury retrograde i think that that's just actually good advice (laughs) (laughs) all right next is the saint bypass which is the idea that there is a quote-unquote spiritual person that spiritual person is kind compassionate and saintly automatically they don't have any faults they don't have anything like that like they're just that way for yourself or for the worship this is this is when you feel that way or you don't feel that way right about Um, someone so if we as children, we are conditioned to believe that we are uh, believe that a spiritual person is a certain way, right? And oh. in adulthood, we continue to repeat that story to ourselves, and it makes us have a lot of suffering because we don't think that we're spiritual people, right? Because we don't have it, so we're kind of bypassing the gray area that exists in all of spirituality, right? And may go straight to in this Can you case. Explain a bad it case. a little bit more. Um, Not getting it. So. If we think that there's black and white thinking and we think that we are a spiritual person, right? If we think that we there's black and white, oh. like this is a spiritual person, then we're going to avoid our shadow work because spiritual people don't have shadow work. Right. It's kind of like a positivity bypass. In some okay, ways. yeah. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. The spirit guide bypass. This is number seven, the spirit guide bypass, which is... I'm not going to get vaccinated because my spirit guides told me. Yes, if you want to get controversial on us. <laughs> 
hey, my spirit guides told me to get vaccinated, so there's that. Yeah, so it's the idea that when we place our faith in another being's power to ward off danger and keep us safe, we are committing a classic spiritual bypass, which is avoiding responsibility for ourselves and our lives and sidestepping the tough development of courage and resilience. Okay. Yeah, so they serve to teach us rather than to babysit us. Everyone hear that? Spirit guides are here to teach us not to babysit us. And the thing is, is that I definitely will do things like I will work with people and in working with people, I will, their lives sometimes, this is going to sound really funny to say, but like a lot of times their lives may take a turn for the better, right? And they're like, well, you're protecting me. And I'll always be like, I'm not really protecting you. We're just, I'm just helping you find the path, the timeline, so to speak, that is the rose and not being being bitten by the snake to get to the garden house sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes if your life path doesn't say that, then that's not going to happen even if you are working with me. So, And that's just based on my own experience. The prayer bypass, which is that basically using prayer to put faith in a higher being to solve all our problems and issues and basically pulling whatever feeling out of your body and saying, like, I don't have to actually meditate because I gave my little puja to my Buddha altar this morning. Right. Exactly. Very similar to what Ainsley McLeod says that, um, the means to become spiritual is not spirituality itself. Right. So meditation is a means to become spiritual. But the spirituality is the experience of being in meditation and, and the feelings of altruism that rise from that. The guru bypass, which is classic. Somebody else is going to do the work for me. I don't have to do it. All right. If I can just find the guru, he'll enlighten me like right. by giving me darshan, which is where he touches your forehead. Yeah. The finger pointing bypass, which is all about... Finger pointing bypass. What is it? This is blaming everything in the external... The finger pointing bypass is basically blaming everything in the external world for the reason that you feel bad. Right. So oh, yeah. I am having such a terrible day because of climate change, right? Right. The injustice in the world is making me upset and making me be a shitty person. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm in denial about how I feel as a person and I'm, exter- I'm extrapolating You didn't put it. your dishes away and now I'm in a bad mood, bitch. Yeah. It could be something as simple as that, right? right? Is this idea that, that instead of recognizing that the world is resonating all the tuning forks in you in a certain way and it's your job to do your shadow work to look at your own self you are instead finger pointing to the outside world because the mudra when you point your finger there are three fingers pointing back at you just do it right now just point your finger but i'm bumped and one (laughs) finger up to god it's god's fault just kidding so ultimately this list you know there's, there's a lot of different things in here. Some of it, and, and some of it applies to what we're talking about in terms of detachment, in terms of like, I'm going to deny and I'm going to push everything out of myself. But effectively, they all kind of go to the same thing and they all kind of come to the same experience, which is that we, we need to experience our full stress response cycles. We fully need to experience the world that we have it. And the more that we suppress, repress, escape, the experience of being in a body and having our life be the way, you know, like having everything happen and being able to react to it, the less we are doing ourselves a service because we learn the most when we're fully in our body, experiencing everything, allow ourselves to go through the full stress response cycle and allow ourselves to come out the other side, having transmuted a conflict into free energy again. Nice. All right. I'm going to go into detachment now. So detachment a little bit different than apathy, a little different than masking, a little different than bypass. 
Detachment is a good thing, according to Buddha. And of course, in miracles and all the masters. And I first want to give a good little description of what detachment looks like from, again, the Manal Gosan article, Apathy versus Attachment. He says that with detachment, there is a calm power, meaning we're not attached to a certain outcome. And above all, we feel an inner calm. There is truthful neutrality, meaning unattached and letting things unfold as they're meant to be. It's a feeling of liberation. You feel liberated about this. There's playfulness and curiosity to it. You feel actively responsible, meaning you don't hold yourself hostage to outside influences about what's going to happen or not happen, and you take responsibility for the choices that you're making without worrying about the results. And openness, open to life, your hearts and minds are not cluttered with negativity or positivity, just meeting life with arms wide open, seeing what is. And I wanted to go a little bit into the Dhammapada. So when Buddha was alive, he gave a lot of sermons and they were in Pali and they were chanted to the point that they were memorized. And S.N. Goinka, who is now deceased, you could find him online. He does a lot of these chants and it's pretty amazing. So when Buddha died, his arhants, meaning the people he helped facilitate get enlightened, got together and they're like, we're going to preserve what Buddha said while he was alive before it can get lost in translation. So that's what the Dhammapada is. It's the exact teaching of Buddha. And according to my friend who was an editor for Hay House, which is one of the biggest self-help publishing companies out there, Buddha is the most misquoted person in history. Did you know that? That is so fascinating. I yeah. did not know She that. says so many people quote Buddha and it's like Buddha never said that. You know, it's just very, it's like people are constantly attributing things to Buddha that he never said. Constantly. So this is, according to history, what Buddha did actually say, which is the Dhammapada. So this is Dhammapada 209. Seek no intimacy with the beloved and also not with the unloved. For not to see the beloved and to see the unloved, both are painful. Okay. What he's saying there is to see someone as someone that you adore, like this is my lover, this is my true love. And then seeing this person as a stranger or someone you don't like, both of that, both are going to bring you pain. Right. So special love, special love, separation. It's going to bring, both are going to bring you pain. Yep. So therefore hold nothing dear for separation from the dear is painful. There are no bonds for those who have nothing beloved or unloved. From endearment springs grief, from endearment springs fear. From him who is wholly free from endearment, there is no grief, whence then fear. From affection springs grief, from affection springs fear. From him who is wholly free from affection, there is no grief, whence then fear. From attachment springs grief, from attachment springs fear. From him who is wholly free from attachment, there is no grief, whence then fear. From lust springs grief. So he just goes in. From lust, from craving. All those things. People hold dear him who embodies virtue and insight, who is principled, has realized the truth, and who himself does what he ought to be doing. One who is intent upon the ineffable nirvana, dwells with mind inspired, and is no more bound by sense pleasure. Such a man is called one bound upstream. Okay, let's explain that for a second, because it's a little confusing. He is saying that whenever you choose to see someone as shunnable, as lovable, as unlovable, as dear, as undear, as endearing, as non-endearing, as someone de- deserving of your affection, of not deserving of your affection, of a deserving of your attachment, of not deserving of attachment, of deserving of your lust or not deserving of your lust from craving. Whenever you're separating any of those things or creating any of those things, you're going to create fear and grief because one day you are not going to have them. So that's grief or you fear losing them. And that, that is attachment. When you are attached to all those things, you're just creating more suffering for yourself. 
I think it's really interesting when you say that too, because you know, I think it's important in case there's anybody out here whose mind works a little bit like mine does, <laughs> uh, which is that don't try and think about what the world looks like without those things and try and intellectually get to that place. Okay, so so basically, like if you're like me, you'll be like, okay, so I won't have, I won't hold anything dear. And I won't hold, I won't have any cravings or lust or, you know, you go through this whole list and you're like, I'm just not going to have any of that, right? And then I'm going to pull that towards me. But that's just a form of bypass, right? Because we have, you can't, you can't dismantle the house with your mind 10 feet back from the house. You need to be inside the house. You need to be inside your body to experience it. That's why things like Vipassana are the experience of watching the, of watching the sensations arise in your body. So you have to watch it right? You have to become aware of it. There are two wings of this bird, right? That the Buddha is talking about. There's, there's wisdom and equanimity. The wisdom asks that you are aware and you are awareness basically in equanimity is that you can't have equanimity and you can't have this detachment without having a full and complete awareness of everything that is arising and, and falling in your body, mm-hmm. right? Detachment and, and all the ways that we're kind of talking about before, probably with the exception of neurodivergence is is the la- is the low awareness is too low the awareness is being pushed out of the body it's being bypassed it's being th- it's being taken out of your experience and then you're like I'm just equanimous look at me I'm equanimous but if you take away the awareness in the in the equation it's kind of like cheating it's cheating it's bypass yeah i want to repeat this last this last little phrase 218 one who is intent upon the ineffable nirvana dwells with mind inspired by supramundane wisdom and is no more bound by sense pleasures. Such a man is called one bound upstream. Okay. One who is intent upon the ineffable nirvana. What is nirvana? Nirvana is the ultimate state of bliss where you experience no taste, no touch, no thought. Mm-hmm. It is just uh, the absolute. It's, it's, we want to talk about fifth dimension. This is like the 10th dimension. Okay. 12th, yes. Or 12th. Is it 12th? <laughs> yeah, 12th, yeah. 12th dimension. So, when you are intent upon getting to nirvana, when you are intent upon reaching the 12th dimension, you will dwell with a mind inspired by the supramundane, meaning you are no longer focusing your life. It's like in that the episode we talked about where, where are you going to focus your attention? You can't really change reality. You can't necessarily change what's going on. You can change where you put in your focus. Yeah. So are you going to put your focus on the mundane, which is this is my beloved, this is not my beloved. This is my lust object. This is not my lust object. Or are you going to put your attention on the supramundane, which is essentially everything beyond the apparent level? Yeah. So subtle levels, levels of sensation, the deeper levels, the ultimate levels. Like basically, you're putting your attention not on the apparent level where everything is a Nietzsche, according to Buddha. Everything is rising and falling. Everything is passing. Everything is is in a constant state of flux and flow. So you're going to put your attention on the apparent level where everything is changing or on other levels where things are more constant and they are quote unquote super mundane. Right. And so you can, to, to even provide a little, like this is what the guides are telling me right now is there's a level in this and the understanding of the apparent level that we're talking about in particular, the mundane is our judgment of the experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the real distinction here. Are you going to concentrate on your judgment of, I made a mistake. I didn't make a mistake. I did this. I did that. Like that, he did this. He that did level that, yeah. of the mind of your judgment of reality and how you are receiving it is what we're talking about. Like 
it's not about concentrating on that. It's about concentrating on what is of just the reception of the un of the, the reception of what is, is the anicca that's coming into your body, right. the recognition that you are just receiving everything. It is continually changing all the time. And then with that awareness and that equanimity to everything that's coming into the body without judgment, that like we were talking about in the great mother experience, like being the mother in your own body, then that's when we can have this experience where we can transcend the, we can go into the super mundane. Right. 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 And then he says, when you are no more bound by sense pleasures, a.k.a. all the shit on the apparent truth level, such a man is called one bound upstream, meaning you are now heading out of this world. You are becoming a non-returner. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting they say upstream. I'm really happy that that's the case because I have started to see the world as like a big, huge oval and... I can see the teachers and where they are now on it in the sense that like, I think that we were talking the other day about how Oprah is like very skeptical. She's very skeptical, but what she does is she's, she's right at the turn. Like if you were to think of it as like downstream and upstream and the people going downstream are kind of not necessarily aware they're young souls or new souls, right? I think of them as young souls. They're kind of on their way downstream. Oprah is at the turning point when people start to turn around like, right. and, and she kind of, yeah, needs to be skeptical. And she needs to be skeptical because she bridges the gap between skepticism and, 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 and magical or hope. and fab- yeah. yeah, all of that kind of stuff. Right. She's very intentional in that space. Right. Even if she's not aware of it, she's, right. she's the bridge for the skeptics to go to, to do an about face and start heading back upstream, which is the, the work of the old souls, right? Mm-hmm. The old souls are heading back upstream towards source again. They're going back to the, the water, this, the point source of the water so that they can, they can experience the zero state. So, oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So to kind of summarize this episode, it's a unique episode in that I don't know if anyone has ever discussed detachment, denial, apathy, and masking in a podcast. <laughs> and we hope that what you get out of this is just a little deeper reflection on what are you doing? You know, there's no judgment here. Mm -hmm. If you are apathetic, if you mask, if you're in denial, there's no judgment, just like observe it. And, and then maybe, you know, focus on the super mundane so you can get detached. Yeah. Yeah. Cause ultimately in Vipassana, they talk a lot about how the two wings of the bird are awareness and equanimity. And overall, what we're kind of trying to say here is the idea that if your detachment takes into account both awareness and equanimity, like you're aware of it, like you're aware of the sensation and how it's feeling in your body and you're aware of everything that's going on and you can be equanimous to it, then that's the form of detachment that the Buddha is talking about. But in any other instance, if you are pushing awareness away by bypassing or by, you know, Sometimes maybe the awareness feels different in a neurodivergent body, but that doesn't mean that the awareness isn't still there. Or if you're feeling apathy, then it may be that your experience of awareness is skewed or different. And therefore, increasing your awareness and then becoming equanimous to that is really the goal. So that's kind of what we're talking about here is all the three versions of the lesser than (laughs) detachment are all examples of, of equanimity or feeling kind of okay with the world, but without having the awareness. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to end the episode on one little quote by Ram Das, and he says, 
A feeling of aversion or attachment towards something is your clue that there's work to be done. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Have you shared our podcast with a friend? Can you ask them to give us a review on iTunes or Spotify? We love hearing them and it helps other people who may not have friends as good as you hear us. Thanks so much. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.